Welcome back to Word and Table, a bi-weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Good to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation and the Greenhouse Movement, and he is the Canon Theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America. And uh, today, Father Stephen, I wanted to talk to you about a particular kind of Christian art. It's one that uh, is very old, but has kind of more recently become sort of popular again on, you know, kind of banner headings online and, you know, uh, PowerPoint slides and things like that that I've noticed in churches. Um, And it's a particular kind of Christian art, like a style of it. Um, that is a little bit weird, I have to say. Um, it depicts a lot of times pictures, uh, scenes from biblical stories, or it depicts um, figures from biblical stories, Jesus, Mary, um, the apostles, uh, Joseph, um, all sorts of people from the biblical stories, but it, they, they all look really weird. Like sometimes they're shaped in kind of strange ways. Sometimes their heads are a little too big. Um, sometimes the the colors in the background stand out way more than the colors, the skin tones of the, of the, of the characters themselves. Um, and there's all of these, all of the details, there's all these details kind of packed into the image. Um, so uh, I wanted to ask you, first of all, Father Stephen, what, what is this style of Christian art? Um, where does it come from? Well, uh, they're commonly of course called icons, which is nothing more than the Greek word for an image. And where they come from is the Eastern Church. Uh, we think of them particularly until very recently. We think of them largely with the, uh, like the Greek and Russian Orthodox churches, the various, uh, you know, again, the Slavic and Greek churches, the churches of, East, of the East as opposed to the West. And one of the reasons uh, they developed separately is, remember back at the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the last of the, of the uh, seven great councils, uh, dealt with the problem of iconoclasm. Can you have images or not? And everyone agreed that that you could. You can't uh, worship images, but you know we honoring them simply is designed to honor what they represent. Okay, so tell me, tell me why why wouldn't you want images? What what's the the thinking there? Well, the thinking was that uh, you know first of all the the Bible uses. Here's how the final settlement came out: is the Bible in in Hebrew and the Greek repre- reflects the Hebrew exactly. There are two different words for image. You know, we talk about like. Man was created in the image and likeness of God. That's the word icon, which is simply the Greek word for image. But there's another word for image, like in the commandment that says, you shall not make unto yourself. And that's the word eidolon, which we became the English word idol. Oh, okay. I see where this is going. And so what happened is the the conclusion was that the ban on images was the, what's the difference between these two terms? Is what's wrong with an eidolon as opposed to an icon is idol is, is a false image. It's like a bad picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's untrue. A true image, like we're made in the image and likeness of God, is an icon. A false image is one, an idol, is something that doesn't represent the truth about God. Okay, I see. And so what uh, happened here is when people said, well, how could you ever represent God? And they said, well, that's what Jesus is. Mm-hmm. In the incarnation, we could see God. You know, Jesus, people, uh, Jesus says to Philip at the Last Supper, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay. So they're saying part of the incarnation was, is it made that possible to us? You know, and so in the sense that they're true images. To show an image of Jesus is to show a true image 
Great. Yeah. No. So let me before we before we move on, uh, let me back you up actually and talk about. So what what you're saying is that the church actually had a whole controversy over whether or not it was appropriate to create and use in church or uh, just create at all images of Jesus and of of the apostles and things like that. Uh, at all, and it turned on the difference between icon and eidolon, or a true image and a false image. Yes, I think that's really important because for me, I, you know, growing up in certain quarters of evangelical churches, there was a, a great deal of suspicion about using any kind of image at all. I think even to the point of, uh, you know, just to be safe, not having any images of anything uh, or of, of Jesus on the cross, or even uh, in 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 churches at all. Um, so uh, it was. It was. It's been pretty enlightened, enlightening for me to realize that the church actually uh, sat down and, and asked this question at one point, and it came out that well, um, certain images are true and other images are are false. So and also the question again, emphasizing the uh, the second Nicaea, emphasizing that we don't worship images. Uh, that if we show respect to them, it's like bowing to the you know bowing our head to the flag or something. Put our you know it's uh, it simply represents what they represent. Right. Right. You know, and therefore yeah. it was justified. Now, a difference, though, why the art became so different between the East and the West is not everyone agreed on everything about that council, though. In the West, we had something called the Synod of Frankfurt, where we said, yeah, we believe images are fine as art. That is to say, one of the, ex- one of the um, explanations that was given was it was like books for the unlearned. And you could see the story of the mm-hmm, Bible, mm-hmm. you could have it in a picture on, your, on the walls of your church, you could point it to your kids, teach them the Bible and things. But it was just that, it's from first to last art. In the Eastern Church, they were sort of quasi-sacramental in mm-hmm. the idea that somehow you know, they're actually part of, they're used in the liturgy and things. So here's what happens. If you insist that it's just art, that gives artists complete flexibility. So you say, gee, yeah. uh, you know, what would... What would you see the Annunciation would look like? Okay. What would you see the crucifixion look like? So you get a lot of flex. In the Eastern Church, because they actually use these in their liturgies, they're standardized, strictly standardized. Like we okay. have rules, like I said, Anglicans and things about what you put in an altar. Yeah. You know, it's not just what you feel like, right? There are specific things or there are rules that we use. So they have those same rules. Okay. And so what we have in the Eastern Church is the, the religious art they use is very, you can learn to read them, read icons, because they have very absolutely standardized representations. Whereas in the West, there's a whole lot of flexibility. Okay, I see. So that when I'm seeing these images, it's like these, they all, they do all the characters in them. They, they all kind of have the same visual motifs. You know, they're different, but they kind of, they kind of do all kind of hue to the same stylistic logic or something well, like also that. Also to what's in them. I mean, for example, a, an icon of the birth of Jesus always has the same points. You can tell exactly once you learn it, it'll always have the same elements. You, yeah. you basically can point to oh, here. Yeah. Joseph will be in the bottom left-hand corner and Mary in the center and the crib will look like a, um, will look like a uh, coffin. Yeah. Uh, so they're all standardized that way. Okay. So let's, let's, let's keep going. So you, when I became a deacon, you gave me an icon and I really appreciate it. It's hanging um, in my office right by my computer. I love it. It's of, uh, it's, it's of the foot washing, in John on Maundy Thursday. I, and I, I sit there at my computer and I look at it a lot. I look over at it. And one of the things that I've noticed about it is really strange. The, there's a bowl of water um, right, uh, right below you know, Peter's feet and Jesus is kneeling by it about to wash his feet. But the bowl um, 
looks very weird. Like the the way that I can describe it to you over audio is kind of hard, but it's as though the 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 perspective is wrong. Like usually in a picture, something that's closer to you is bigger and something that's further away gets smaller. But the bowl, the part of it that's closest to you is smaller and the part that's further away is bigger. And the water does the same thing. And that bowl bugs me a lot. I'm like, why did they get this perspective wrong? What's going on there, Stephen? Are they is is this an intentional choice or was this just a really bad a artist or like challenged artist? Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Actually, it's a really good point. We can prove. You see, uh, the iconoclastic controversy came up after the been centuries of Christian art. It wasn't like this was an original country. People took it as a given. Mm. You draw pictures like of anything else. So this wasn't like primitive art or something, and it just got better over time. <laughs> no, actually, what we, our earliest icons, like most people have seen, the most famous icon in some ways is a very early icon, which is atypical, which is the, called the Pantocrator, means ruler of all. You know, the Pantocrator of Sinai with Christ holding this book. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's with a blue background. You'd recognize it if, if, if you saw it. And it looks very realistic because it was based on Roman paintings. Romans were very realistic, and you know the paintings yeah, we yeah, find, right. especially in northern Egypt, are, are just as real as ours. Yeah, are. you I go mean, to the museum and the you know statue. The people Roman knew perspe- were, knew how yeah. to do it. Um, okay. you know, they recovered a lot of that at the Renaissance, but that wasn't a question of, of of ability. It really was like this: the idea in the Eastern Church with icons, and again, when it wasn't given over to the artist, was we want to tell people that you know, like in John's Gospel, we say the big deal is. Don't look at the sign. Look at what the sign stands for. Mm-hmm. That's the miracle. Yeah. yeah, don't don't get lost. It's not the the wine mm-hmm. when the water turns into wine. Yeah. It's the one who can change it. Yes, that's the, what you should be looking at. The multiplication of loaves is not a free lunch. It's about the one who nourishes us. Yeah, exactly. So what they do in icons is we call it. There's a term for it. I love this. I can invent this. It's called theoretical anti naturalism. It means you you draw the pictures in a standard way so the people couldn't possibly take it that you're trying to actually draw them in the sense of making a good picture. Oh, okay. So they reverse perspective. They call it inverted perspective. It gives you the feeling sometimes you're going to fall into the icon because all the perspectives uh, are backwards. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so you're right. So so if I'm looking at the picture, it looks like the stuff in the picture is actually a little bigger than me. <laughs> it's like or than where I'm at. But uh, it's designed to tell you, wait a second, this isn't just a regular picture. It's designed to tell you you should be looking beyond the icon. Okay. They do okay. other things. For example, they uh, typically have gold or blue are always the background. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, for example, they have that standardized because it's designed to tell you this is not, this is beyond the real. Okay. It's not an attempt to reproduce what we would see. It's designed to tell you this is symbolic of what we can't see. Okay. So wh- one other thing I've noticed about this kind of art, Stephen, is that sometimes um, the uh, one character will be, will be nor- really big and another character will be really, really small. And it reminds me a little bit of like those uh, Lord of the Rings movies where some people are <laughs> normal sized or giants and other people are little or hobbits. And well, I mean, what's going on here? Obviously this is an intentional well, choice. Well, I've got to tell you, there's an icon I love of St. George mm-hmm. and he's battling and it looks like he's battling the munchkins <laughs> because <laughs> there are these tiny people around him. The but, Smurfs. But the, the, the Smurfs. You know, yeah. St. George takes on the Smurfs. But the idea here is uh, theoretical anti-naturalism is that the important people sometimes will be bigger. 
So okay. we don't get lost in the crowd scene. We tell right away, this is what you want to be focusing on. Right. So whereas we might, like if you're doing a concert or something, we have a spotlight saying of all these people, here's the one to really focus on. We'd use a spotlight. They don't have a spotlight. So what they do instead is, well, something just blow them up. They will have them clearly bigger so you know, oh, this is what, who, like where's Waldo? Here's what we're looking for. Okay, well, that's, that's, that's super interesting. So um, here's another feature of icons that uh, I've noticed um, it's that they will be depicting a particular uh, moment in the Bible. So, for instance, there's one with uh, the of the nativity. Um, but in the nativity, the characters all in the frame are from completely different times and episodes. So, uh, <laughs> just behind Mary, it's like a montage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's or like, like a collage or something. It's like just behind Mary, there's. The uh, angel announcing to the shepherds, the magi are off in the corner. Um, there's Joseph sort of pondering these things, and there's the bathing of Jesus. But it's all it's all like in the same scene. What's, yeah. what's going on there? Because the the main thing about uh, there are, they call the fourteen feasts of orthodoxy. They have you know the great feast of the Christian year, and what they have here is the big thing about the feast is to give you all the theology of what's going on. And so what happens, like, for example, in that scene, Joseph, normally we think the Christmas icon is being Mary and the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the middle. You will never, ever in an authentic Eastern icon see Joseph anywhere near Mary Hmm. because the theology of the nativity is the Son of God became man. Jesus' father is not Joseph. He's God. I see. I see. And so we have Mary alone with the child and Joseph in the corner pondering. What's he pondering? That this is a miracle. Well, this is meant to be another attestation, the fact that, the you know, being the fiancé, if this were a natural birth, he would be the most likely person we'd suspect would know. Yeah. And so the very <laughs> fact that he has no doubts about this is, again, another testimony. In fact, it's not Joseph. He has no doubts about this. Yeah. So where's the baby? You know, it's, it's, the, it's the, you know, the son of God. So the, the father is God. You know, the mother and father. This is the theology. Another thing that's neat is if you look at the... the, the, the um, the crash, the uh, manger, looks just like a tomb. A little baby's wrapped up, frankly, like he was, like like he's dead, like in burial. Oh, really? That's not accidental. Yeah. Remember John's Gospel, where Jesus says to the apostles, to paraphrase me, says, "Look, this is tough. How can I pray? Can I pray make this pass? But this is the whole reason I came into the world. Mm-hmm. He came to die. Yeah. So the story, of the Easter icon, the Christmas icon." is that, remember, Christ became incarnate so he could die for us. I see. So this is not an, a terrible accident. This is the reason he came into the world. That theology is right there in every Christmas icon. When you see Christmas, you, you're, you're reminded where this is going. Wow, wow, okay. It's not just a sweet baby holiday. Yeah. He was born to die for I us. See. So this is, I mean, these things are really like teaching tools as oh, well. Oh, yes. This is, this is really about... Um, r- reminding it's like visually depicting the meaning of the of the image at the, at yes all at the same time for example you'd mentioned that they had and you were looking at the at the, the icon it had uh, the, the the magi this is showing that this was a promise God keeping his promise to Abraham that Israel would be a blessing for the whole world yeah so the magi represent all those other nations coming from afar okay and then why is it out to the the angels to the shepherds well the shepherds were outcasts they were the poor. Think of Luke's gospel that there, you know, God was, the people normally left out who weren't in the mainstream. Mm-hmm. The good news being preached to the poor.
there's a little more to that than a, a standard um, crush <laughs> nowadays. Well, as far as the Eastern Orthodox <laughs> are concerned, in icons, it's the theology that counts. Yeah, yeah. You know, a good example of that would be the Pentecost icon. Yeah. So I have a I have a question about this one. Oh, actually. okay, please. So this has got to be something that was a mistake. Okay. So uh, Pentecost. The, the first of all, the scene. Um, the the first thing that is weird about this one is that um, obviously at Pentecost the, we've got the twelve we've we've or the eleven apostles there okay mm-hmm. and and here though Paul's there but yes. Paul but Paul wasn't there at at he Pentecost certainly wasn't <laughs> so we'd have them all under arrest so what's the theology behind Paul being well there? there's something else too you might. Uh, that was really good that you saw that, but there's something else if you really look carefully. You'd realize that two people, uh, two other people shouldn't be there. Oh, really? Okay, I didn't see that. Uh, actually, we'll find that the evangelists who aren't apostles happen to show up. Luke is in that picture, and so is Mark. Oh, I forgot. Neither yeah, one of those are right. They're both there. You're totally right. And that means we actually have two, two apostles who are left out to make space. <laughs> okay, yeah, wait. Oh, that's a shame. Because <laughs> they have to keep the number 12. They just get bumped out. <laughs> Uh, but the reason, though, is, again, this is the theology. What is the Pentecost about? It's about the mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world. And Paul, remember, he emphasizes in writing, I'm as much an apostle. I share the apostleship. So it's emphasizing this is about the apostolic mission to bring the gospel to the world. And therefore, all the, pe- the people who did that, we want to symbolize we find it in the written gospels, even with people who weren't the apostles, those you know, Luke and Mark. And we... Uh, find it in Paul. He was fully one of the apostles. Also something else, in a Western icon, we're told specifically Mary was present. Hmm. Okay, we're told specifically she was there. That's Believe me, she's always on a Western icon, a Roman Catholic icon. Not just because of Mary, because she's also a symbol of the church. And it's the birthday of the church. Okay. However, she never appears in an Orthodox icon of Pentecost. Why? Because the theme of Pentecost is the mission to the world. And Mary didn't share the, evangelic, the evangelical mission to the world, you know, to see. proclaim the gospel. So again, their view is we will change the facts if we have to to get the theology right. You know, sometimes you even find Last Suppers where you'll see a fish on the, on the table. And you say, why a fish at a Passover? And the mm-hmm. fish is there to remind us, you know, again, the fish was, you know, was the famous Iclis, you know, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Okay, yeah, to tell like you the Christian this, fish this, this is about... Christ, what's there isn't the bread and wine, it's Christ. Okay. Is yeah, on that table. Yeah. They will do those kind of changes and they're standardized. I see. Yeah. The, you're talking about the ichthyus like we see on bumper stickers yes, nowadays. Yeah. That fish. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Last thing about the Pentecost icon, Stephen. This one, I just cannot imagine what this is going on. First of all, uh, we're told specifically in the Bible that the Pentecost happens in an upper room mm-hmm. indoors, but the icon happens out of doors. Because you can see the sun, and the 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 building is the, everyone's seated outside of the building. So what's going on there, and ha- what's happening? It's a convention. It's like think of it this way: to 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 be anachronistic. Imagine a uh, a filmmaker who said, "Look, I don't have good lights indoors. Why don't we just shoot this outside?" But it's an indoor scene. So okay. what they had is they had standard conventions to tell you it'd be better to draw this outside because the colors are better. But we know what happened inside. So there's a convention on an icon. If you see a drape, a red drape in the back, it means, yeah, I know it was inside, but it's easier to paint outside. Oh, interesting. So, 
So, so it's always painted this way. You're right. So there's this little drapery that kind of goes around the top of the building, and that's telling you, actually, this happened inside, <laughs> but we're just drawing it Well, it's like in a movie. You know, yeah. if somebody came who'd never seen a movie before, you know how we do a dream sequence. Suddenly there's, uh, how would you describe with like waves on the screen? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Oh, it's like okay, so so it's like on um, on uh, Saved by the Bell, one of my favorite shows from my youth, when they would you know dream about not being in high school anymore and all being like married or having jobs or something. The screen would go all fuzzy for a second, right. and then you would be in the dream scene. We all know that's the convention of saying, "Hey, it's going to look like a, like reality, yeah. but it's really a dream." How do we tell you that? We okay, know. yeah. And this is exactly what this does. It tells you, "Yeah, dude, I know." <laughs> okay okay got it got it but got it's it. always painted outdoors okay all right fascinating okay so the the main thing that i'm sure everyone is aware of with icons um and not not just eastern icons but um all sorts of religious paintings um would would be th- people have halos oh, people yes. got those halos and not the uh lateral kind um, that not the, not the, like, um, the latitudinal halos, but they're, they're vertical and they're just, they're kind of, uh, just sort of, uh, ringed around the person's head. Sort of like we're, they're wearing a satellite dish at the back of their head. Right. Yeah, exactly. You yeah. got this, one of those dog cones or something on the back yeah. of your head. Yeah. Um, so, but here's the thing, you know, I, I feel like I, I got that, you know, these are sort of holy people from the Bible or something like that. Uh, but some people have them and some people don't. And sometimes some, the, a certain character who has it in one painting won't have it in another. Um, so what is, what is happening there? When, when do you get the halo? Well, it's, that's really good because there's a difference between the Western church and the East. In Western art, it's sort of the Western approach. Black hats, white hats. How do you tell the good guys? Okay. <laughs> uh, saints get halos to tell you these are the holy people, so you don't miss them. These are the as opposed to normal, like in Western painting, you'd often paint the donors, the pe- person who commissioned the painting gets shown in it, but next to the saint, right? right you don't right. want to confuse yeah. them with the saint, yeah. often for good reason. When you think of some of these people donating the paintings, but in any event, <laughs> uh, you know that's what you do. In the Eastern Church, it doesn't work like that. You get a halo when you get it, when you really understand. So the apostles don't get halos until the day of Pentecost. Because they really don't get it completely until okay. that time. Okay. So that's when they're like fully enlightened. Yeah. About so what it's interesting. In the, in the raising of Lazarus, being raised, uh, raised from the dead, that's good enough to get it. And okay. so Lazarus <laughs> in that picture, Jesus has one and Lazarus has one, but all the apostles are still waiting. No way Lazarus can't get this. At yeah, this he's, point. he's okay. got it. Okay. Fascinating. Um, so uh, sometimes, though, there's people's halos look different. That's the other thing. Um, sometimes there's a cross in the halo. Why is there only a cross with Jesus? Halo? Okay, only with Jesus. Only Jesus gets the cross. In the Jesus halo. gets a cross in the halo. It's interesting in the cross. What you have too is you have three letters that look to an English speaker like small letters for W O N, like victory one. I won the war. Type mm-hmm, of thing. One mm-hmm. W N. That's actually Greek for Haon, which means the one who is. You know, God calls I am the I am. Yeah. So it's a way of saying you're, when you look at Jesus, you're seeing God, the one who is. Oh, I see. You're seeing the great I am, the one who is. So when you see something that looks like one, W-O-N, you know, with one letter in each one of the three parts of the cross, you can see his head's blocking the bottom. I see. Okay. That's what it's standing for. Okay. Okay. And then they also tell you, lest you, if, you, if this hasn't been good enough for you, 
you always it always has his name written abbreviation. You know how we write Mister with just the first and last letter M R. Mm-hmm. Well, they do the same thing. They say Jesus. You have you have something that to us would look like an I and a capital I and a capital C because Sigma, which is the, the S in Greek, later on the later form is, looks like a C, like we still have in Slavic languages, like Russian. It okay. looks like a letter C. Yeah. So that's Jesus, and then we have an X and a C again for Christos, the anointed, oh, okay. Jesus Christ. So you'll yeah. see I C X C meaning Jesus Christ. Oh, okay, okay. So it's just kind of like a label here. The yeah. first label is, this is God. The first la- the other label is, this is Christ. It's even a little more than that. In the Eastern Church, you know how very often people will dedicate, and I can, like in the Western Church, they'll ask for it to be blessed, you know, to set aside for religious use. Okay. It's actually putting those names on it that blesses the icon in the East. That's why all Eastern icons have writing. Oh, okay. There's always okay. a name. The saint's always named. So, like, this is set aside for religious use. Yeah. Basically. So, it's part okay. of how it's done. So, all icons have letters on them. Okay. So, so don't don't put this on your banner image of your website. <laughs> well, I, I, had some, I had somebody I knew. This is a funny story. Okay. There are listeners. Bear with it. Is he was in the Middle East. He was in Jerusalem. And if you've spent any time in the Middle East, you know that if the minute you're in a store and you start looking at something, people descend on you to try to for- get you to buy. Yeah, yeah. And he didn't like that kind of pressure. So what he did wherever he went is he had something he really would be interested in but would not be likely be out front to give him time to just look at what he wanted to look at by the time they got back. Okay. So the guy comes up and he says, well, gee, uh, can I, oh, this is, what are you looking for? He said, well, actually, I'm looking for an icon of St. Stephen, the first martyr. Uh-huh. He said, well, I've got, let me get it. So he comes back in a jiffy, and the guy looks at this, and he says, well, well, thank you, but why do you suppose it says St. Demetrius? He says, oh, you can read Slavonic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> why do you suppose? I love that. Why do you suppose it says St. Demetrius? Can't pull, can't, pull, can't pull one over on, on the Slavonics reader. That's great. <laughs> okay, so... Um, Great. So uh, let me let me ask you a couple other questions about a couple other uh, icons that I've seen. You mentioned the uh, Pantocrator earlier. Yes. Um, so for, so that, that's a that's a again for our, our listeners that means ruler of all. Okay. You know, like we say democracy, aristocracy. That crossy part we have stands for rule from Greek. Right. And so Panto means everything, like Pan. You know, Pan Pan American. You know, every you know across everything. So Pantocrator means ruler of all. I see. Okay. So why does he have the book in his hand um, in that image? Well, that's, uh, you know, Christ is the bringer of the new law. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, and the uh, on images of the resurrection, um, w- the color palette is often white and gold. What's the, what's the reason for that's, that? That's the resurrected Christ. Normally Christ, this is very different from the West. In Western art, Jesus wears red, which is the very masculine color, you know, and Mary wears blue, the color of purity. Okay. It, it's, it's opposite, in a way, in the Eastern Church. Think of it this way. We think of blue as the color of heaven, the sky. Mm-hmm. You know, in a lot of languages, those are the same word. Sure. You know, Kyle, Amelia, Lana, it means sky, and it means heaven. And so what happens is blue is the color of divinity in the Eastern Church, of God. And red is the color, think of color of skin, skin color, red. We think of yeah, you know, yeah. red-blooded, you know, red uh, skin color. So that's a sign of humanity. So Mary and Jesus ha- always have both colors, red except the resurrected Jesus. Okay. And then what they have is Jesus, it's blue over red because his divinity, his Godhead, covers humanity. Oh, okay. With yeah. Mary, remember, she bears him in her womb. It's her humanity, red over blue, his divinity. Oh, I see. So she's always red over blue. He's blue over red. 
Okay, okay. At the resurrection, he's all in gold and gold and white to show us the resurrection. But then, up in heaven in the ascension, he's back to red over blue to rem- uh, blue over red rather to remind us that it's he's truly a human being. He's truly God and truly man. Even there's a man at the right hand of God. I you see. Like where, where Paul says to Timothy, you know, we have you know our ad, you know we have the the man Jesus Christ at okay. the right hand of God. Okay. Yeah. So talking about Mary. There's also some letters around Mary sometimes. What what's going? What, well, it looks like an M P, and again, that's an abbreviation for P is really R in Greek. So it's Mater, and the other is uh, like a T and a Y capital. That'd be Theo, means Mother of God. Okay. And by the way, this is to emphasize. This isn't really talking about Mary uh, to celebrate her virtues. It's really talking about something about Jesus. There was a heresy that said that tried to treat. Jesus is one person with two natures, human and divine. But some people were treating it, arguing that really like there were two Jesuses. There was a divine, Je- like a chain gang movie, where you know where people were. T- <laughs> there's the human Jesus of Nazareth, uh-huh. and there's this divine. They're somehow just together, but they're really acting separately. Okay. And so the point that this is a heretic named Nestorius, and so the point the church made is, what's true of one is true of the other. In this, in this sense, that you can't separate the two. Jesus is there's one person. That's what we say: one Lord Jesus Christ in the creed. Mm-hmm. But I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, one person with two natures. And so Nestorius had said that Mary, when she was bearing Jesus, wasn't bearing the second person of the Trinity. That was just the physical person, Jesus yeah. of Nazareth. And the church says you can't separate the two. From the very conception, Jesus is truly God, truly man, inseparable. So that's why they said it was correct to call her mother of God. I see. Not to celebrate her, but to celebrate the fact that Jesus, even in the womb, was fully God and fully man. Okay. He wasn't just, you know, there was never, you can't separate Jesus' divinity and humanity. He's one person. That's what it's celebrating. Okay. Well, let me, let me ask, before we move on, let me, let me ask you a really quick question, actually. So I've seen, there's an, there's an icon, or sometimes I think it's just kind of like a huge fresco of Mary and her hands are kind of uh, outstretched beside her head and kind of like a, almost look, looks like a worship sort of position, something like that. Um, and then, uh, you know, she's got a halo and she's really big, but then they're in a, inside of a circle kind of like around her chest and kind of abdominal area is, is Jesus inside this kind of separate circle. And he's really small. Um, but typically in it, um, he's not a baby. Right. Right. He's also, he kind of looks like he's maybe, you know, in his late twenties or something like that. Um, but, uh, maybe with a bit of a receding hairline even, (laughs) but, uh, I've, I've heard, I've seen, you know, I've seen it's in every Orthodox church. Okay. Yeah. yeah, It's really common. It's called wider than the heavens. Yeah. So one thing I've heard has been, okay, look at these people. They're obviously worshiping Mary. They're not worshiping Jesus. She's so much bigger and obviously therefore more significant than Jesus is. But what's going on in this particular icon? Well, quite the opposite. What happens, she has her hands up in what we call the Oran's position, the prayer position. Remember in, in the... Um in the book of Revelation, we have that woman who gives birth. You know, she's emblematic of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what happens here is Mary is an emblem of the church. And so that's why we have, remember Paul says, he talks about the church, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Yeah. So the church is where we find Jesus. So she's an emblem of the church. And what do we find in the church? We find Jesus. And it's as church that we offer praises to God. So it's behind the altar in an Orthodox church. Yeah. And it's a representation of what does it look like for the church together, praying to God. We're joining his church with Jesus who's in his church. Oh, okay. To pray together. We're joining in his one prayer to the Father. So the book of Hebrews. Jesus is in the image of Mary, just like Jesus is in, in the, the church. church. Okay. And that's why it's yeah. not a baby. 
right, it's saying, you know, it. the, it's the church. The church of Christ is in his church, and in his church we join with him before the Father in that eternal prayer that we talk about in the Hebrews. Okay, so uh, tell me in, about another icon, Stephen. Um, there's one that it's kind of got a, a widescreen format. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of it has that big wide sort of lens to it, um, and Jesus is in the middle, and then Mary is over on the left, and John the Baptist is over on the right. Um, Jesus holding a book, and it, it looks like Mary and John the Baptist are kind of looking at him and deferring to him. And Jesus is kind of sitting on this throne and almost in this kind of like glory. So, so tell me, tell me like why. Okay. So first of all, I don't really normally think of Mary and John the Baptist as having much to do with one another. Why are they there? And and what's going on in this, in this image? Well, first of all, this is in every Orthodox church. It's called the deesis, which means pleading. They're okay. actually praying, you know, Mary and John the Baptist. John, John the Baptist, Jesus said, was no one greater before the kingdom was than John the Baptist. Mm. And yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater. So it's, I would call it the holy handoff. You know what's neat is, remember, poor John the Baptist had been over 400 years. It used to be with the prophets. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah or to Jeremiah. We said the word of the Lord came. Yeah. Then there was this great drought, right? Remember we said it was predicted you know, in the minor prophets. You know, and after Malachi, we had this drought for like over 400 years, maybe 450. And then suddenly it says in Luke's gospel dramatically, it's in such and such a year, and he says, the word of the Lord came to John in the desert, you know, the word of the Lord came. Yeah, yeah. It's the restoration. So the word of God had come. This was the, the culmination of the word of God coming one way. But why does it cease then? Because suddenly we go from the word of God coming as a physical word, you know, the word of the Lord came to, to the word of God in person, the holy handoff from the word of God oh, okay. to the word of God incarnate. I see. That's why there's no further revelation that way, you know, in, in that same sense of the word of the Lord coming, because we have the word of the Lord. John, the, John of the cross famously said of Jesus, he's God's final word. He has nothing more to say. Okay. He said everything in Christ We have yeah. who continues to live with us. We have the fullness of the word of God in yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. So it's this beautiful trade-off of the meeting of the Old and New Testament. The word of the Lord came to the word, then the word of the Lord. Okay. And we have. Okay. So that's why John's there. Why is Mary there? Because she represents the incarnation. Okay. Okay. I see. So this is entirely about the word of the Lord culminating in Jesus Christ. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That makes complete sense. I, I have a couple of other questions for you. Oh, actually. Please. Um, so we're, I'm looking into getting, uh, an icon for my young son, um, who, uh, as it turns out, has decided that he is really afraid of wolves, <laughs> believe it or not. This is true. Um, and, uh, so I, I thought it'd be a great idea to get him an icon of Jesus, the good shepherd. Um, he's caring for the sheep. Um, he protects the sheep. So I'm looking at it though. And um, I'm looking at these icons with my wife and she is looking at Jesus and she's like, his, he has such a stern kind of strangely expression. He's not, he doesn't look real cheerful. <laughs> um, you know, uh, what, what's going, and I noticed this in actually a lot of icons as well. Um, the look that Jesus is giving is one that's somewhere between uh, laconic and stern, I'd say. Um, but what's what's going on in his expression there? He kind of fixes you with this gaze, but it's not necessarily 
happy. It's not totally mean either. It's just this kind of um, it's this kind of even intense. It's the kind of look like this is not the day to ask for a raise. (laughs) I'm not going to get fired, but it's not the day to ask for a raise. Exactly. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that. I think that. we had kind of a strange reaction to it. We're like, is Owen going to like this? You know, I don't know. But, but tell me what's going on with the expression there. Well, let me tell you how you see this normally in any Orthodox church, and then I think that make it clearer. Is when you first come to an Orthodox church, the very first icon you see is you come into the actual, uh, in, into the church proper out of the narthex, the vestibule, is called Christ the Teacher, and he's almost always very friendly. You know, he's welcoming you, you know, to learn from him. Okay, yeah. So we have Christ, and he has a book, and he's smiling, you know, or, or very, very welcoming. Then if you look up, there's normally a dome uh-huh. uh, above. And if you look in the dome, you have the same, it seems to be the same icon, Christ with the book. But this time he looks um, more again like not the day for a raise. <laughs> and this actually is meant to t- deal with something theologically. Remember that when we look at Jesus, one of the th- truths of theology we're taught is whenever we meet any member of the Trinity, we meet God entire. Okay, yeah. God can't be in pieces in the sense that whenever we encounter, to encounter Jesus, to encounter the Father. And so what happens here is whether that normally is sterner to tell you that look beyond just Jesus, that when you're looking at him, like he says to Philip, look, you're seeing the Father too. So it's a way of saying, look beyond the man we know and have eaten lunch with all these times, all these years in the Sea of Galilee. You know, when we're seeing him, we're also seeing that fear of the Lord in a healthy sense. Like, you know, this is... Okay. We're seeing God himself. I see. So that's the reminder. So the sternness is meant not as putting off, but simply saying it's more, is that how, it's trying to show how do we match the transcendent and the imminent. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, sometimes our tendency is to want to choose one or the other, kick God upstairs or make him our buddy. And yeah. here it sort of, it balances that in the images of Jesus. Right. Imminence and transcendence, because we see through Christ, we're not seeing the whole picture if we don't see that Christ wants, leads us to the Father. Yeah, and you know, I have to say, you know, personally, looking especially at images of Jesus, it's not really the kind of I it, the, these icons are not really the kind of picture that you can just kind of take one glance at and sort of take it in and and move on. Like I, I've noticed that it it really lends itself to kind of staring at it a lot, yeah. and and the expression is one of those things. It it there's something slightly puzzling about it that I don't feel like I can quite get at what's going on just by glancing and moving on it really lends itself to contemplation well there's one thing uh that a lot perhaps the most famous icon the oldest one of the oldest surviving icons is the pantocrator of sinai right everyone's seen this if you look at it, it's called the pantocrator of sinai you know mount sinai because there's a monastery there and there's a strange look on jesus but there's a secret to it is if you take a piece of paper and you his left eye and his right eye aren't quite the same if you put the paper over over the one eye, he looks very welcoming. If you look at the other, he looks stern and judgmental. And it's from the idea of the last judgment. Is mm-hmm. to those on the right hand, he's welcoming them home. To those on the left hand, be gone, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you actually, if you do that, it really works. I uh, see. Okay, okay. Well, that makes sense. Um, so you, you, brought up the, you brought up the Trinity. Yes. Uh, so I wanted to actually end by talking about uh, one of the most famous icons. Again, I, I feel really certain that most of our listeners have seen this one, um, and it's it's of the Trinity, uh, and it's it depicts the Trinity as these three men sitting at a table, um, and they're all kind of got their heads crooked a little bit, and there's kind of a bowl thing on the table. 
Um, but I got to say, this is one of the more, it has the, 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 the sort of uh, counterintuitive perspective thing going on there. Um, there's a lot of uh, gold, there's halos around it, but I, I got to say, this is kind of one of the more, um, one of the more difficult ones for me to see what's going on there since it, 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 the, the symbolism in it is somehow a little bit more abstruse. Maybe you can help me unpack it. This is one of my favorite icons. I always have one with me. I'm in my office. I have you know, one at home. I, it's called the Old Testament Trinity. Remember how they said to be a true image? Well, we could see Jesus Christ. How could we ever see the Trinity? Because we talk about the, like the baptism. We hear the Father's voice. We don't see him. We see the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, but we don't actually see the, how do we see all three members of the Trinity? Remember in the, uh, in the book of Genesis, we have the three angelic visitors at Mamre yeah. to Abraham. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's interesting. If you look at that, we should talk about it sometime in an episode. It's a really very powerful moment because uh, basically he describes as my Lord in the singular, etc. puts the singular and the plural together, which is very Trinitarian. You know, the, you know, he's, there are three people, and yet he, mm-hmm. there's a singular, you know, used again and again when he talks to them, you know, my Lord, etc. Wow. And so they thought this was, this was typically taken as the Trinity, wow. as a manifestation, just like at the baptism of Jesus, as a manifestation of the Trinity, the three persons of the Trinity. So they said we could draw a picture. If we had to draw a picture of the Trinity, there's only one time we've really seen them, so to speak, as human beings. We've I seen see, yeah. the angels at Mamre. You know, or symbols, you know, the Trinity of the Trinity. Yeah, so like an image of the Trinity. An image, but an authentic one, because it's something we actually did see. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay, so this refers to the, 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 like an actual Old Testament uh, event. This is the actual, the the Oaks of Mamre. Which you see behind, if you look behind the um, uh, Jesus. Oh, yeah, there's there's kind of a little tree kind of sticking up in the background. Right, yeah. And what you have, some interesting things that might throw people off, is we often think of the Trinity from Western images of God the Father is an old man, and then we have uh-huh. Jesus, etc. The Orthodox don't like this, because remember, we say Christ, God doesn't know time. All God mm-hmm. is, you know, he, Christ was born, he isn't any younger than the Father. Right, yeah, that, that was he a was fairly born all ages. particular point of, of, of contention in the early church. Right. Right? So all of them are the same age. Okay, yeah. In the oh, Trinity here, sense. all of them are the same age. Christ is in the middle with blue over red. We have Father with, uh, with, with gold on the right, and we have the Holy Spirit, and they're looking at each other in a circle, like you know, the, the life of the Trinity, except the Holy, the Holy Spirit's sort of looking out. He's wearing green, by the way. I, I noticed that, actually. There's not a whole lot of green in these icons, but he's, he's got green on. Remember in the Creed, we call him the Lord, the giver of life. Mm-hmm. You know what a lot of people don't realize, Alex, is when you say what the color of the Holy Spirit is. You know, liturgically, like when you go to church, we have different colors for seasons. Right. I feel like I would say red, right? Well, that's or... actually the color of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Green, remember we said the Lord, the giver of life. And so actually the color of the Holy Spirit himself is green. And that's why we have this long period during the year, which is actually the time of the Holy Spirit. Remember, after Jesus leaves us in the flesh, we receive the Holy Spirit, and we're now in the age of the Holy Spirit. Okay, okay. And then we start the cycle again when we have Advent. So green isn't just like, you know, this is whatever boring time. No, it's the color of the Holy Spirit. Actually, the Holy Spirit. Okay, wow, cool, cool, cool. And so the Holy Spirit, notice he's looking out because it's the Holy Spirit that connects us to the Son. He's the one who convicts us and brings us to the Son who leads us to the Father. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is kind of this, um, I don't know, there's this kind of Zen or sort of circular thing about this where you kind of look at one and it kind of... Uh, the way his head is inclined kind of like makes you want to kind of look over at the other and then look over at the other and then look it's over emphas- at the other. Right, it's emphasizing yeah. the life within the Trinity. Okay, okay. The, you yeah. know, they, they exist as one, 
constantly, you know, in 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 balanced with one another. I see. One God, three persons, but balanced, perfectly balanced, sort of looking at each other. Yeah. So, actually, there's a word that's beautiful this way, Alex. It might help our 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 our, our, our listeners. It's called in Greek perichoresis, mm-hmm. and that actually comes from dancing around in a circle. And the Latin <laughs> okay. version is the same. Circumcession is the Latin version of that theological term. It means the mutual indwelling. You know, Jesus says, I abide in the Father. Father abides in me. Okay. That mutual abiding is called, you know, it's like dance. You know, this okay. uh, perichoresis yeah. Yeah. is described the mutual indwelling. They're, they're, they're separate, yet they're one. They're one God, one essence. And within that essence, the three persons. Okay. So this beautifully as a circle represents that. Okay, I see. Perichoresis. So sometimes it's like I've seen the Trinity, you know, visually depicted as like kind of a Venn diagram of like three circles mm-hmm. kind of overlapping right. one another partially. So you're saying that the perichoresis and this icon is is kind of focused on the the overlapping parts of that, like the where where each uh how they all mutually is. indwell. By the way, yeah. It's an unbroken unity, one being it's a way of showing that. Okay. And again, choresis, we think choreograph, right? For dance, perichoresis. Okay. Yeah, I see. Oh, wow. That's, that's really great. Well, great, Father Stephen. That's, um, man, we, we covered quite a few icons today. I'd say that's a pretty great crash course if you're interested in okay. going. Again, you know, just uh, Google image search some of these, take a look at oh, them. Yes. We're, we're going to uh, actually include links to all of the icons that we talked about in our show notes. So um, if you're listening on iTunes, uh, click on the episode and um, you should be able to find links on there. If you're on our website, it'll be even easier. Um, so, uh, great. So Father Stephen, I had one more question to ask you. So, yes. you know, we're of the Western tradition here in the Anglican church. Um, and obviously we have something, you have a, a different, a different sort of artistic tradition than the East does. Um, and we also don't really, you know, maintain some of the kind of sacramental, more mystical no, we don't. worship. How did these, this Eastern tradition of icons, how do you appreciate them or, or, or kind of use them in your worship, I'd say, or how do they, how do they inspire you to... Uh, in your spiritual walk? Well, I have a set of the um, festal icons, for example, so I put up the, the festal icons on the feast. What I love is that you, you just look at them and you see the theology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because if, if we ever, listeners have the chance to actually study, each one of these has its own story, but they each tell you what's important about this feast. I mean, what, where does that bring us? You know, how do we understand Jesus better? And so they do a beautiful job once you know how to read them. It's just an automatic visual reminder. It all comes back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Father Stephen. That's all the time we have left for this episode. And thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thank you for listening.